I wish we had paper Bibles right now because then we could all hear each other wrestling through the Bible pages and you could get a good a smell of a bonded leather Bible. Does anybody got like a real Bible today with them? Yeah, there it is. Wave it up in the air, Jim. Give it up for Jim with a bonded leather Bible. Those are the real kind. Just get a good smell of that. Well, we're going to start a new series on Ephesians. And I don't know when it's going to end. All I can tell you is when it's going to begin. And that's today. It starts today, but uh, it may not end for a very long time. Here's the reason. Today I am speaking on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Just verse 1, and it's going to take all of our time. Then alone, just in verse 1, there's about four other messages I'm going to preach. Maybe a total of five from verse 1, but I may go with four just out of verse 1. So this is going to be a time for us really to get into the book of Ephesians. Now let me help you understand a little bit of the culture of the Bible here. When the Bible was written and Paul is writing this letter and giving it to somebody, they are more than likely in a house church, in a Bible study, probably the same size as this, if not a little bit smaller. And at that time, that's probably all the Bible they had. Maybe on top of that, they would have a gospel. If the uh, church was started by Paul, they would probably have the gospel of Luke. That was written by Paul's assistant. If they were a church started by Peter, they would probably have Mark, because Mark wrote down Peter's um, words for the gospel. If they were a church started by John, what gospel do you think they would have? John's gospel. You're pretty smart. If they were started by Matthew, what gospel do you think they would have? Matthew, you guys are keeping up here. So now watch. If this series takes us a year, takes us a year to go through the whole book, is that odd to the culture of the Bible? No, because they would meet daily, not just weekly, but daily. And that's because it was an ancient culture similar to third world culture where they worked and, and lived all within the same walking environment. So literally, they would walk to their job, you know, do their job, go home, eat, and they would go right to church every single day going to church. Now, the Catholics can teach us something about that because my Polish Catholic grandmother grew up next to the Catholic church and she went every single day. Did anybody else have relatives like that? beside me, okay, a few of us here, that can relate to that. Well, that's how they grew up in that culture. Now, the Bible culture, think about this, every day they're coming together. What are they doing? They're praying, reading the Word, and encouraging each other. If all you have is Ephesians, how many times do you think you went through it? If that's all you have, that's, that's going to go over and over again. So just for an example, yesterday on my bike ride, on one way, doing my 15-mile one way, 15-mile back, basically 30 miles, I listened to the book of Ephesians three times. That is what I want to do this entire season as we go through it. My guess is this will take us all the way to 2018. Like I said, if I'm preaching four sermons just on one verse, possibly five, and I'll show you those in just a minute, this can be a very in-depth sermon. But I don't want to lose your attention, and I don't want you to get bored, so I want you to take on the book of Ephesians, read through it maybe once a week, once a day. Like I said, I listened to it three times in one day, and take it seriously. So before we get into the actual sermon for today, let's look at the book of Ephesians to understand it. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, where I'll be preaching preaching today's sermon. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now where are my five sermons right there? Four to five sermons. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm actually going to go back next week and preach on Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, because as I've been talking about it just since I started today, I'm like, man, I need to teach you guys about Paul. A lot of you don't know the story of Paul. So I actually skipped right ahead to the will of God. You can see that's what we're preaching on today. But I'm going to go back and talk about Paul, the apostle. There's two sermons. To God's holy people in Ephesus, that's a third sermon, learning about who we are in Christ. And then the faithful will be our fourth sermon, talking about faithfulness to God. And then the next one, in Christ Jesus. That is just verse 1. And we've got six chapters and 24, six chapters, and I think it's about 50-some verses to go through. Can I hear an amen? Okay, so let's go through the overview as you start to read this on your own. Any good study Bible will help you do this, but uh, that's what I get paid for. That's what I'm here to do. I've hopefully summarized some of this information for you. Paul starts this letter explaining who he is, and then he lifts up the people of Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor, and I'm going to show you a map about that here pretty soon, but it was one of the churches that Paul started. Then he jumps right into what is probably known as the most spiritually minor a letter to the Christian. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and those letters are written to people in cities. So Philippi is the book of Philippians, written to people in Philippi. Colossia is the book of Colossians, written to the people of that city. My uh, Nancy's, my wife's family, her mom and dad, my in-laws, were from Thessaloniki. They came here from Thessaloniki to here, where we get the book of what? Thessalonians. The city of Corinth is where we get what book? Corinthians. The book of Romans comes from what city? Rome. You guys are pretty smart. And then there's books named after people. And Timothy is actually in Ephesus pastoring this church as Paul writes his letter, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Now, what is interesting about this is how heavenly-minded Paul gets immediately, and he doesn't do what he's been doing in other letters, like to the Philippians, Colossians, especially the Corinthians, and other places. There's no rebuke. There's no pastoral problem that Paul has to solve here. He literally is writing this out of the necessity of the Holy Spirit to teach on the identity of the believer. And here are some of the most beautiful beautiful language you'll ever hear applied to the Christian. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the name of the sermon series is In Him because you're going to hear that term in Christ or in Him and it was already right here at the beginning in Christ Jesus about 27 Seven times in the book of Ephesians, hence the name of the title for the series, In Him. So he begins to give this magnificent understanding of who the believer is, that the believer is holy and blameless, predestined to adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ. They've been redeemed. They've been forgiven. The grace of God has been lavished on them. And this is all because of what Christ has done. They are chosen, once again, predestined for the purpose of his will in order that they may be to the praise of his glory. They are marked with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, and they share in in the inheritance of the possession of God's people. Isn't that amazing? That's so awesome that Paul does that. But there's something scandalous right here that most of us don't even catch right off the bat. Paul is, first of all, not rebuking them. That is odd that he speaks so highly of them. But what what else is scandalous here 
is that these people come from a Gentile background. As a matter of fact, as you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, they were practicing witchcraft, practicing temple prostitution. They were some of the most worst pagan Gentiles, and yet Paul is esteeming them with the highest biblical language of Christ's identity inside of believers. The reason is, is because this, le this letter is a springboard to the rest of the surrounding nations, uh, cities in that nation, that God has a plan for all nations, not just Israel. And that is mind-blowing, especially to the Jewish people, because they would have looked down on these people. They're pagans, they're prostitutes, they're, witch, they're, they're witches, they're practicing witchcraft. And yet God had a plan for them as well. And if you would go back into the Bible, you would see that God promised to bless Abraham, uh, through Abraham, bless all the nations of the world. Not singular, not just Israel, but all the nations. And then uh, Paul goes into this wonderful prayer that he has for them. And this should be the prayer that all of us want to hear our pastor pray for us. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. So do you want to be some of the people I give thanks to God for? Right? So stay out of trouble, love God and love people, and I'll be thankful for you. Then Paul goes into that revelation that we call the grace message. This is quite an amazing revelation that God had given Paul because it ran contrary to the religion of his day. The pagans of that day had to do good works to be saved. And over time, though the Jewish people were taught to live by faith, they began to do works-based salvation, bragging about all that they did, hoping to be saved. And now Paul comes here dancing to a different beat. This is the drum that he's beating everywhere he's going. And as a matter of fact, this is what gets him in trouble more than any other message, is that God saves us by grace through faith. And in chapter 2, we see one of the key uh, verses, even one that we confess here every Sunday, chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. You can see this running contrary to all the pagan religions and to all the Jewish people at that time who had lost their way. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And uh, Paul expounds on this grace message in other books like like Romans, but he's running through it as a part of his introduction to give these Gentiles the great news, and that's where he starts to hit on it in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, formerly you Gentiles by birth were uncircumcised, and you were looked down on by those who are of the circumcision. But remember, those of you who are separate from Christ, excluded from citizenships in Israel and, and foreigners to the covenants without hope in the world, have now been brought close to Christ by the the blood of Jesus. You who are far away have now been brought in. And all the Gentiles said, what? Amen. Aren't you guys happy? Unless you are a Jewish person by genealogy, you fit into this category. And if you don't know what circumcision is, just ask your neighbor after church. They'll tell you what it means to be circumcised. And so here's that heavy revy. It's like, oh my goodness, the pagans the idol worshipers, these people are saved by grace just like Jewish people are. And then he blows the mind of every religious person of that day. Even the Jew and Gentile alike were blown away by this because it says in verse 14 of chapter 2, he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now watch this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity 
Oh my goodness, nobody could see this coming 2,000 years ago, that the Jewish people and all the nations of the world would meet at the cross and become one new humanity. Let this be the cry of every justice warrior, every social worker, every pastor, every police officer, every military person, that we are not here to look at each other as different races, but one human race, and in Christ, following his commands, we literally become a new humanity. That's what it means to be born again. You individually become a new human person, a new creation, the Bible says. And then when we as a people, uh, black and red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight, when we become born again, we collectively become a new humanity. I think that's pretty awesome, and that's what Jesus came to do. And so he concludes with that, and then in the chapter 3, he actually tells you where he's at when he's writing this letter. Where is Paul at when he writes this letter to the people of Ephesus? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? He says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He's in prison because he's gone into the pagan world to preach to them the gospel. And as a matter of fact, it's the Jewish people following him to all of these pagan places, stirring up trouble. But nonetheless, it was because he was called to preach the grace message specifically to the Gentiles that he's now in prison. And so it's from prison he's writing this letter, this letter about how we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. You want to talk about being challenged to believe, uh, you know, what you really believe in the times of hardships. Imagine being in prison and yet writing, I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And then he continues on to talk about that mystery that's now been revealed. And the mystery was found in the prophets that it wasn't always going to be us and not us. That's how Israel looked at themselves. It's all about us, and if you're not us, it ain't about you. And now he's saying this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And that's where we begin to see his prayer now. At the middle of this letter, he starts to pray. You can see him almost like literally doing this action while the scribe is writing down what he's saying. He literally kneels. You can almost see that. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in, his, in, in your innermost being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And he talks about how amazing love and grace is. This is what Paul wanted them to know. This is what he's praying for. You can literally almost see him going to his knees. And then he hits on this point, which we may think is an interruption to his other points, but it's actually all in line. You see, Paul starts off talking about who he is. He then tells people who they are in Christ. And then he talks about the great blessing of the salvation message of grace and that Jews and Gentiles can be saved. And now he begins to talk about the church, the body of Christ, and how we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, because there's only one body, one church, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. Can I hear an amen? But this is not an interruption. This is not a distraction. This is the whole point. Because now the church is the reflection of the new humanity. The church is the reflection of Jesus in heaven. Jesus is in heaven casting a shadow or a reflection upon earth. And what does the shadow look like? What does the reflection look like? The church. 
Does everybody get that? If I cast my shadow from up here, you see it down there. It, it reflects my hand. Or if there's a mirror over there and you see the reflection over there. What is Jesus' shadow here? What, what is the reflection of him upon this earth? It's the church. And in the church, he has set these very important people. They're called the fivefold ministry. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And what is their job? To equip the church for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's why we're here. That's why we're listening to trained leaders, so that we may become mature. Everybody go, mature. So that we can be mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So is it important to study the apostles' writings, the prophetic writings, to be taught the Word of God, to evangelize, to teach, and to be taught? Yes, because this is a part of us growing in our faith. And it's from this point, by the way, that we get to Ephesians chapter 5, where he starts talking about that, that marriage lesson that we always hear at weddings, that, you know, as Christ loves the church, so men ought to love their wives, and as the church submits to Christ, so the women ought to submit to their husbands, right? And you guys have heard that before. And it's almost like if you skip to 5 and don't understand 4, it's like you think marriage is primary, church is secondary. The example is really just more primary for, church, uh, for, for marriage and secondary for church, but that's not how it is here. As a matter of fact, when you look at the creation order, what does God create first, church or marriage? Technically, he creates church because it's man created for fellowship with God. It's only after man doesn't find true companionship with the animals that then he creates a woman and then marriage. But first and foremost, there was church, the body of Christ, union, humanity in union with God. And so we see here that it's not that marriage is somehow the supreme thing of the kingdom of God and the church has come second. No, it's actually that the supreme thing is church, our relationship to God, and marriage is secondary. So not only did it come first, but it lasts longer. After we die, resurrect, go to heaven, come back to rule and reign with Christ on the earth, there will be no husbands and wives, no mothers and fathers, only sons and daughters of God, the church ruling and reigning with Christ. Did you know that? Marriage is just a temporary relationship meant for this one purpose, to give us a reflection of who we are with God. That's what it was meant for. It's not that the example church comes after the example of marriage. No, church comes first and the marriage example comes second. Look at that as you start to read the book of Ephesians and see if you come up with it. Then here at the end of chapter 5, he gets into what we call the Christian moral code, the, the commandments of Paul. Paul puts them in all of his letters about how you now should live. And he tells them right here, you should no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking, the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of his heart, their hearts. How do you think he looked at that pagan world? He loved them, but he knew they were ignorant. He knew that they were hard-hearted. What else did he say that they were? They lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over the sensuality. Doesn't that sound like most television today? So as to indulge in every kind of impurity and every form of greed. Now, how many lessons do you think I'll find here in the passage of morality with Paul? I could preach a whole message on hardness of heart, whole message on losing your sensitivity, a whole message on impurity, Another whole message on greed. What about a whole message here on the corruption of the old life? Because the Bible says here to put in the new attitude of your minds and take off the old self and put on the new self, creating true righteousness and holiness and put off falsehood. How many know I could do a message on lying and telling the truth, right? 
How about loving your neighbor? How many think I could do a message on that? How about not angering, uh, sinning in your anger? How many think I could do a message on that? Can I get an amen? How about this one right here, not stealing? That's a good one to talk about during tax time, not to lie on your taxes and steal money from the government that's not yours. How about working with your own hands and providing for those in need? Shouldn't I talk about working hard to be generous? Sometimes people think that they just make their own money. It's their right to have it. They should be able to do whatever they want with it. Well, God says, I gave you those hands. How about if I spend a whole message just talking about unwholesome talk, words that come out of your mouth that don't build up others? What about talking about not grieving the Holy Spirit? How about talking a message on bitterness? Wouldn't that be a great message to learn not to get bitter, but to get better? How about talking about anger and rage and not fighting with each other? How about a message on kindness, compassion, forgiveness? Now, why is that moral code so important to Paul? Is he reverting back to a works-based salvation that through these things we're saved? No, it's because of these things that we show our salvation. I'm not saved by doing good works. I'm saved to do good works. Do you understand the difference? My child doesn't have to try to be born right now into my family by doing good works. They've already been born into my family, but by their good works, they show they belong to my family. Because if my children don't talk like me, don't act like me, they show that they don't uh, appreciate me or, or understand me. And that's why Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that it's following God's example that we live holy. So does God tell lies or does he tell the truth? Okay, so when you tell a lie, who are you acting like? Back, like, like who? The devil. When you tell a lie, who are you acting like? So follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Whenever you sin, it's not that you have just done something that's arbitrary. You've sinned against the character and the nature of God. Let me give you an example. We go to England, and I was in Bahamas with my friends. They say drive, because that was a, a British province, whatever. They say drive on the left-hand side of the road. I go here, you know, come back to America, drive on the right side. Well, which one's better, which one's worse? There is none. It's all just a matter of opinion, right? But is that the same thing with the Word of God? Is it just a matter of opinion that sex before marriage is a sin? Is it just a matter of opinion that abortion is a sin? Is that just a matter of opinion, or does that show forth an example of God or an example of the devil? See, moral laws teach us who God is and who God is not. Think about that. I keep the laws of God because I want to show who he is. And there's some more that Paul lists that we should make sure that we are, are good to follow. There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. Shouldn't even have a hint of it, right? Shouldn't even be a hint of it on your internet. Shouldn't even be a hint on it uh, in your eyes. Shouldn't be a hint of it or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Shouldn't be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting. Those are out of place, rather thanksgiving. Shouldn't be immoral, impure, greedy. Such a person is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And look what Paul says, let no one deceive you because of these such things the wrath of God comes. He breaks it down here at the end. He says, you're children of the light. You're not in darkness anymore, so live as children of the light. And that's why he says, wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. And he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, for the days are evil. Then you get to how that looks, okay? So Paul is saying, here I am writing this letter to you guys. This is who we are in Christ. This is the grace message. This is the importance of Jews and Gentiles together, the body of Christ, the moral code. Now here's how you live it out. Husbands and wives, get along this way. Children, obey your parents this way. Workers with your bosses, live this way. Bosses with your employees, live this way. And then he gets into chapter 6, and what does he talk about now? The spiritual battle. 
Because there's going to be a fight for you to do this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. How many know the moment you're going to believe who you are in Christ, you're going to believe the grace message, you're going to believe that Jews and Gentiles alike are in one new humanity in Christ, you're going to believe the moral code of the Bible, you're going to put order into your family, into your job, into all that you say and do. How many know you've got a fight on your hands now? The devil doesn't care about Miley Cyrus. The devil doesn't care about those who are in his path already. It's those who go against the stream that then will find out how far, how fast that flow is going and how much it wants to push them away. That's why he now talks about a spiritual battle. Trump is not first your enemy. It's the spiritual battle that controls the things you may disagree with Trump. First and foremost, Assyria or Assyria and these nations are not our, our enemy. It's the spirits in high places. So let's just make it real simple. Let's pray for all people to live for Jesus and to renounce the ways of the devil. If we do that first spiritually, we can then see the good and what people are doing. We'll know the difference between good and evil. And then at the end of chapter 6, Verse 21, he lists to us a special brother named Tychicus. This is the brother who brings the letter to the city of Ephesus, also was sent to bring the other letters because Paul was in jail. We learn that people matter, that every person has a place to play in the kingdom of God. He's a dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord. And I just wonder, is that being said of you today in your life groups, that so-and-so is a faithful servant in the house of God. They, they serve at King's Kids. They serve on Sundays. They serve at Elevate. Are you known as that in the church? Because Tychicus is a great example to us. And now, what is one of my favorite verses is the last verse of the book of Ephesians. And it's good to note it now because we've gone from the first to the last. Ephesians 6, verse 24 says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So put it all together. Here you have Paul Spending much time in this city, bringing it to a mature church, sending Timothy, his favorite spiritual son, to pastor it, giving them this wonderful letter, telling them all of these great things about what God has done for them and who Christ is in them. And then at the end, he says, grace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That is his final words. It's all about grace and love. Grace and love. And yet we see just 30 years later in the book of Revelation, Jesus is giving an account of seven churches of Asia Minor, mostly started by Paul, as you'll see in just a moment on the map. And you know what the one thing Jesus has against the church of Ephesus? They have forsaken their first love. He says, you have forsaken that love. Do the things you did at first. So this book is an encouragement to us, but it's also a warning that if you don't take serious the message of identity that Christ, who Christ says you are, if you don't take serious the message of grace, if you don't take serious the call of one new humanity in the kingdom of God, if you don't take serious the body of Christ and the role in which you play in it, if you don't take serious the morality and the moral code of God, if you don't take serious the order of the family and society and structure from the Bible, if you don't take serious the spiritual battle. It don't even matter if Paul's your apostle, Timothy was your pastor, and the book was written to you. You can fall out of love with Jesus. So that's why we're going to take this next year and go through this book. How many all ready? You ready for verse one? All right, let's go to this to lesson today. Our first one in the series, I am excited to start this journey with you. In him. Let us look once again at the verse we're going to study today, Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's review some of the things about the book of Ephesians. The author is Paul. The year is around 60 A.D. 
The occasion is after his third missionary journey. He took three major journeys of his ministry. He's now in jail in Rome. Tychicus, the brother who brings it to him, also visits Colossia and Philemon, that brother who's mentioned in the Bible who frees a slave. The major theme named after our series In Him or In Christ is said 27 times. Uh, something unique about the city of Ephesus is it was the fourth largest city in the Roman world, upwards of 100,000, 170,000 people there because it was a port city by the Aegean Sea. It had the temple of Artemis for the goddess Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a theater that could hold to 25,000 people. And that's actually where we believe Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 9. Remember, Acts follows the life of the apostles. And so when you're seeing things happen uh, in Acts, you can actually follow along in these letters. Or if you're seeing things in the letters, you can go back to the book of Acts, the historical account. And then about this church, as we've mentioned before, it was started on the first journey. He came back on the third journey, spent a lot of time there. Pagans come to Christ, Gentiles, people who practice witchcraft. Paul's favorite son, Timothy, was sent there in the books of First and Second Timothy are written to him to pastor that church. Here's a brief timeline for you to get it all together. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is around 33 AD. Paul is converted around that same time about a year later. And remember, he is a high-ranking ranking Jewish scholar and official who's on his way to persecute Christians going on the road of Damascus when he gets knocked off his horse, converted to Christianity. And that's going to be a wonderful sermon next week. So make sure you come and bring the most rugged, like, sinful person you know because if God can do it in Paul, God can do it in them. Amen? So just be like to your friend, you really need to come this Sunday. Why? No, just trust me, you need to come. Bring, bring the homeless guy limping along the road, bring him, say, come on in, we'll get you some free coffee at church. Bring whoever you can to hear that message. Uh, Paul gets saved, he goes to Jerusalem a couple times, he starts his first missionary journey around 46 AD. He then takes his third visit to Jerusalem where all the church was at. Second missionary journey, 48, is where he uh, starts the church of Ephesus, um, or excuse me, where he passes... It's actually in my notes it says it's on the first trip he starts it, but it's the second trip he starts it. And on the third is where he spends the most amount of time there. He then leaves there, and that's in the book of Acts where he leaves, and they're weeping and crying when he calls the elders around them. That's uh, the people of Ephesus because then he gets arrested, and then he gets beheaded in Rome around 64 AD by Nero, the emperor of Rome. He was a psychopath. Uh, he blamed most of the problems of the decline of Rome on Christians. He started doing uh, genocide against the Christians. A Roman candle comes from that time. Uh, he would line up Christians, impale them on stakes, set them on fire. He crucified them, uh, and he beheaded Paul. So that's how Paul's life ends, but he's in glory right now. Amen? Uh, here's what Ephesus looked like in the ancient world. Once again, considered Asia Minor. It's a part of the Roman world at that time, occupied by Rome. Ephesus and some of the other cities you'll remember here, as I talked about in Revelation, Laodicea, Colossae, uh, Philadelphia, Sardis, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum. Don't you remember these from the book of Revelation? These are the churches Jesus is speaking to, giving his correction. Uh, Ephesus, from a bird's eye view, would have looked like a, a big metropolitan city. You know, this was big for their time. Fourth largest, as we said before, in Rome. It had that kind of uh, uh, waterway that came from the sea right up to their city there. It had a huge theater, a stadium, that temple of Artemis that was popular at that time. And then here's what Ephesus looks like today. It's right there in the heart of Turkey. And these lands were taken over from being Christian to Muslim uh, after uh, Muhammad 
Muhammad began to do his jihad uh, across these lands. He began to conquer Christian lands. So if anybody ever says to you that it's unfair for Israel to get its land back that God said is theirs uh, because it belongs to the Muslims, and just ask the Muslim to give back all their Christian lands, okay? And we'll trade you Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Iran, uh, Egypt, Libya, even Ethiopia. We'll give, just give us all back those lands to Christians. Can I hear an amen for that? And just a little side note here in a world that's really dominated by race, once again, only one human race, but at this time, as we would define race, they did not define race. They defined uh, culture uh, by the country you were from, not by the skin color. So uh, Moses married an Ethiopian, so there were dark-skinned uh, Israelis at this time. There would not have been an issue to them. Uh, they were also in bondage in Egypt for a long time. Egypt is not quite uh, as dark as southern, uh, western Africa, but it's, it's darker than some parts of the Middle East. Uh, so you see the colors being mixed together. Also in the Roman Empire, they were more about Roman citizenship than they were about skin color. So skin color as race definition really didn't come around until the Islamic rule as they began to dominate the world that way. And sadly, Europeans learned from them. But in the Bible, there are people of color all throughout the Bible. Just another example, uh, Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Also, you see Simon the Cyrene carries the cross of Jesus, another dark-skinned person, Middle Eastern and Asian, all mixed here together. Because remember, this part of the world was also known as Asia, Asia Minor, even pushing all the way to what we would know now today as, as the Asian Oriental uh, countries. And so that's the book of Ephesians. And Paul says that I am doing this by the will of God. So let's now discuss the will of God for us personally. The will of God can be confusing for Christians because they have a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. That's a big word. Everybody say sovereignty. Thank you. So we're going to get a definition of that later, but let's just track and go heart to heart as everyone looks at me, please. Have you ever struggled with the will of God? Have you ever asked yourself, maybe as I did, when someone died, why did they die, someone else lived? Well, the problem is we don't understand God's sovereignty, and we don't understand the big picture. Once you understand the big picture, these things will not bother you as they may have bothered you in times past. But let's just say you're a little sassy. Let's say you go, uh, let's say you're like uh, a relative of mine, and you go, Joe, why did your sister die? Why did my cousin Jenny die drinking and driving, yet Hitler got to live a long life until he committed suicide? You know, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, what you will see is we can look to the Bible and see exactly why there's evil in the world. That answers the question. Mankind is sin, curse upon the world. Doesn't mean individual people are cursed. It just means we live in a cursed world. God has allowed it for his glory. If that's not good enough for you, your question is meaningless to God. Now, I know for us in the 21st century, Discovery Channel, tell me everything I need to know. Hey, I'm in charge here. That doesn't settle right with us. But that's not how it works in the Bible. In the Bible, it starts off really simple. He's God, you're not. It's his way, not your way. The first question will always be answered if you have a humble heart. Why does evil come into the world? He'll, he'll answer that through the scripture. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do children die of cancer? He will answer that first why for you, very simple. But most people are not satisfied with that. Ask a second why, and God calls that rebellion. 
So let me give you this with a, a, an example we could all get with uh, children and, and being parents, okay? So imagine today we go home and we make a meal, chicken and broccoli and some mashed potatoes, right? Now my kids can say, why are we eating this? Don't we have pizza in the refrigerator? Don't you have money in your wallet and you can go get us some tacos from our favorite place, you know, cilantro's right by our house, you know, and then I'm going to give them an answer, aren't I? And what's the answer pretty much going to be? Because this is what I want. That's it. That's, this, this is the answer. Now, if they don't like that answer, that's on them now. But I've given them an answer. This is what I wanted. Does everybody get that? God says that quite often through the Bible, and now you're left with the choice of trust. Do you trust him? Do you trust that what he's serving you up now works in the end for your good? Do you believe that what humanity goes through now as a whole works out for our good? That is the choice that you have to make. But he doesn't owe you anything else other than that, and he doesn't promise to give you that. So we want you to get out of speculation and into faith. Get out of doubts and start doubting your doubts and get into trust and love for Jesus. Because though God's will may be mysterious at times, it is a mystery that can be uncovered via our relationship with Jesus. God has always intended for his people to understand both his will for their lives and for humanity. Look at it, Amos, a famous prophet here of the Bible. Look at Amos 3, 7. And now understand this. There is not a plan that God gives to his people that he doesn't want you to understand. There is not going to be any mystery to his plans that he will not give you the, uh, the revelation of it, the understanding, the ability to solve it when it relates to your life and humanity. I know that sounds like a broad statement, but it can be backed up. Look at Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord, uh, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the who? Okay, so is there any plan that God will do that he doesn't reveal to the servants, his, pro the, his servants, the prophets? No, so does he have a plan for you to get married? Yes or no? For most of you, it's probably yes, isn't it? So has he revealed to the prophets how you are to get married? Yes, he has. He's told you what to do. Start off with loving him and putting him first. Number two, don't do it with a non-believer. You see, anything beyond that is not necessary. That's the foundation. He will direct you from there. Anybody here want to be a parent or already a parent? Does God have a plan for families? Yes, he does. We've already learned some of it in Ephesians. How about this? Does anybody here want to make money, spend money? Does God have a plan for the economy? Yes, he does. Does God have a plan for a nation, a country? Does, does anybody believe that? So he does. He has revealed those things to his prophets. It's up to you to know what he's revealed. Now, once again, there are certain things, obviously, we're not God, don't have perfect knowledge, and the Bible is not, uh, you know, a thousand-volume science encyclopedia historical book. So there are certain things about God's will that he deems unnecessary. He deems it unnecessary and can remain unknown until his kingdom fully comes upon the earth. However, those things are not needed for a godly life. So can you discover things about science that are not in the Bible? Absolutely. But are the things we discover in science that are not in the Bible needed for a godly life? Does physics change whether or not we have a happy home, a blessed marriage, a successful spiritual life? No, it doesn't, right? Does, does what our economy does up and down through stocks and uh, Wall Street? No, that is not the basis. The basis for the godly life is very clear in the Bible. That is the will he wants you to know. And when you do that, you seek that 
God adds to you the other things of life. Things like how to tie a shoe. The Bible doesn't teach you how to tie a shoe or whether or not to use Velcro. But whether you have Velcro, tie a shoe, or walk barefoot, that will not affect you being godly. What God teaches in the Word does affect you. Can I get an amen for that? Just want you to know the difference. Now, here's where it is in Scripture. Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy. This is that letter I was telling you, one of them written to Timothy while he's pastoring in Ephesians, uh, Ephesus. He writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for how many good works? For how many? For every good work. So is there any good work that God wants you to do that he has not taught, rebuked, corrected, trained you for in the scriptures? No. You cannot think of one. I'm telling you, I do this for a living. I'm telling you, I can't think of one. I've tried really hard. I don't just come to the Bible and say, I'll just believe it because it's the Bible. I think through it as those maybe who disbelieve the Bible. I'm telling you, those things I've just talked about. Well, the Bible doesn't teach me how to tie my shoe. doesn't teach me how to lose weight. Or what. Well, but the Bible teaches you the foundation for all of those things. It teaches you the principles for those things. It teaches you creation has a creator, so everything is in creation has an order that helps you understand anatomy, a biology, physics. The Bible teaches you about doing things wisely, so that would apply to health and discipline. The Bible teaches you about being kind to your neighbor. That would teach countries about making treaties and laws. Can I get an amen? The Bible also talks about respecting the sword and government. That teaches us about protecting our borders. And there's, a, there's going to may, maybe be disagreement over Christians having these discussions, but I guarantee you two Christians will not be disagreeing over whether or not abortion is murder according to God. Christians will not argue over that. Christians will not argue, true Christians who understand the Bible, about gender identity. It's clear. Do you guys get that? The majors and the things we need for a godly life will be clearly taught to us through the scriptures. Now let's go to First Peter, uh, rather Second Peter, chapter three and onward. Uh, uh, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one and verse three. He says, "His power, Peter talking, has given us everything we need for a godly life. His power has given us what? Everything we need for a godly life." One more time. What has His divine power given us? Everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See, there's your answer. Why is there corruption in the world? Because of evil desires. Point to any place that is corrupted off perfection, I will show you, evil desire brought us here. Let's talk about the corruption of the natural order, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes. That is a corruption because of evil desire. We will see that soon enough in Genesis chapter 3. When we sinned, earth was cursed. Corruption came from evil desire. Child dying of cancer, seven-year-old that I think of that I saw on online, beautiful uh, young girl. Now there's a, a foundation for her, and uh, the father keeps this foundation alive, and every now and then sends pictures, uh, posts pictures of him being with her, and, and it just breaks your heart because he's talking about this is your birthday or it's Christmas and I miss you, right? And so the idea, why did that happen? Corruption of her body, evil desire. Is it her sin that brought that upon her? No, that's superstition, karma from India, Hinduism teaches that. It's not what the Bible says. Evil desire of Adam and Eve, representatives of humanity, brought the curse that led to the corruption of her body. 
And we'll talk about that working for the will of God in just a moment, but that doesn't happen by accident. God has allowed corruption through evil desire to be here, and it's your choice whether or not you participate in the divine nature or the fallen nature. You are already born in the fallen nature. This should be enough evidence out here to you, fallen nature, bad. As C.S. Lewis said, if you look at the world and try to satisfy yourself and you look within and you still can't satisfy yourself, you must know that your desires were made for another world other than this one if you see no satisfaction out here. That's why when I, when I talk to young people especially and they say sex will make me happy, I say you haven't had enough sex yet because you'll realize sex will stop making you happy. And even some of the people here that are slaves to your job, money will make me happy. You haven't had enough yet. Once you get enough of those things, you'll realize how empty they really are and then you'll realize you were made for another world. Hence the need of being born again, a connection with that world to fulfill a desire. As another person said, you have a God-shaped hole that only he can fill. Otherwise, it's a vacuum that keeps sucking down everything. Now, here it is in conclusion to our introduction. How many are about ready for the message? Here's the conclusion. Therefore, everything, somebody say everything. Thank you. Everything God wants us to know about his will, to know it, and everything he wants you to do according to the will. So knowing and doing or knowing and showing has been revealed in the scripture and can be known by those who ask, seek, and knock. Isn't that what Jesus taught? You want to know what God wants you to do? Ask him. Seek him. Knock. So here, let's talk to a single person here. You want to know who you're supposed to marry? Ask God to bring you the right person into your life. When you sense that person coming to your life, seek them out and do the right things accordingly. Knock on their door or knock on their Facebook post and say, what's up? Those of you here today that say, well, I'm looking for a job. What's the will of God for a job, pastor? Do I have to do the crooked, the crooked chicken pose and do yoga and wear yoga pants and be a vegan to, to be spiritual to figure it out? No. Here's what you do. Ask God what your passion and gifts are. Ask him what he put inside of you to do. Seek out the opportunities to do it and knock on those doors and be available. Follow that through your whole life. Well, Pastor, I'm going through a hard time in my marriage right now. Ask God for his wisdom to how to talk to each other. Seek the answers out together with patience and kindness and knock on the door of the future and opportunities to start new things. Knocking on a door symbolizes a new place, a new opportunity. Are you listening? Now we have to ask ourselves, do we believe in the will of God? Even though we may not always agree with it, Though sometimes it's hard for us, Jesus, sweating drops of blood as a man, literally prayed this prayer, not my will, but your will be done. It wasn't a problem of him knowing the will that made it tough. He knew it. It was the problem of the flesh conforming to that will, which made it a problem. Give you a quick uh, story here. So I have a four-year-old son, Lucas. He loves Jesus. He loves me. He loves his, you know, his family. And uh, he just loves his friends here at church. But there's been a problem. He's been hanging out with another pastor's kid. And these two pastor's boys keep getting in trouble. And I, as a dad, I've had it up to here with him coming home with timeouts from Wednesday King's Kids and Sunday King's Kids here on, on, at Sunday school. And so we have told him, if you get in trouble another time out, you're going to lose your opportunity to play video games because he plays the Wii. You're going to lose the treat because I give him a little treat every day like candy or ice cream. And you're not going to be able to go to Liam's house, which is Vicente and um, Desiree's son's house. And we're going to take these privileges away because I'm teaching him this. And on the way here to church, because it's happened about three times, we had a talk with him in the van, did we not? 
And he understood it. He un- it was so clear. It was, Lucas, do you understand? You're supposed to listen to the teachers. Yes, Daddy. Do you understand? What will happen if you don't listen to the teachers? Yes, Daddy. And I literally ask him, what will happen? And then he says something like, I'll lose my treats and something like that, right? Well, I had to go use the bathroom today during first service, and guess what I saw? He was in timeout with the other pastor's kid. I was literally going to spank him in the bathroom, but I said, no, I don't want that to scare the other children. I said, let me wait to do that at home. And by spanking, let me qualify, because I live in a generation now that people may think spanking is child abuse. When I say spanking, I mean not leaving a mark, okay? That's what I'm talking about, biblical spanking. And that is what I saw him doing today. Now, was it a problem him not understanding my will? No, he understood my will clearly. He understood my will absolutely clearly. What was the problem? The problem was his will did not want to submit to my will. And that's where most of our problems are. Now look at the prayer right here. Now ask yourself this question. Did Jesus teach us to pray a prayer that would never be answered, that would be impossible to find out? You'd have to go on a spiritual treasure chest hunt to the Himalayan mountains and talk to a yogi up there or some guru. Or did he actually teach you to pray a prayer that he believed would be answered every time you personally pray it? And if you pray it for humanity as a whole one day, that will be answered too. See, I believe God truly wants to answer this prayer. Is that what you believe? Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Pray this, thy kingdom come. Thy what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where does that start? Right here in our hearts. So today the will of God is for you to know the will of God. It's for you to know it, to understand it, and to submit to it. Not to just make an excuse and say, oh, it's so mysterious, I don't get it. No, like my son, if you apply understanding to it, you will get it. Now, those who don't have the ability to do that, God is merciful to children and to the handicapped, but that is not who I'm speaking to today. Now, let us look at the will of God and get deep. Somebody say, get deep. As we get into the message, it's a great way here to look at the will of God as three parts of the will of God making one whole will. There are three elements of the will of God. There is the descriptive will of God, that which God commands for all people to do, where he describes his will. He says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and I don't want you to do that, and I don't want you to do that. That is the descriptive will of God. That is for all people, all time. We call these his commands. We call this his law. He has put it in the the, the Bible, the scriptures, through the prophets, the apostles. It is there for all to hear and to read. The second thing, and before then, it was from a verbal transmission, him speaking directly to people. And as you will see, those of you who think, well, if I just had God speak to me, you know, like out of a burning bush or verbally talk to me, I would never break his law. You'll see lawbreakers who had divine encounters that would blow all of our minds, and yet that still wasn't enough. Why? Because the will of man is still free. And it doesn't matter what encounter you have with God, it will still ultimately be your choice. Whether you hear it in a whisper from the Holy Spirit as you read the scripture, yeah, I probably shouldn't put down that social security number for my taxes. That's not really mine. Or whether it's not, it's literally God speaking from a fiery mountain, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not put any gods before me. You will still be 
a human being with a free will, no different than Adam and Eve, Moses, or the Israelites, or Cain, who has a choice to make. Nothing will further you to the truth or push you away towards error other than yourself. You alone will be responsible, as you will now learn that a free will agent made in the image of God stands alone for their own choices. And that's now where we get the permissive will of God. God has told us what he wants us to do, but he allows. He does make a decision. It is not outside of his will. It still pertains to his will that he says, I will that you have free will, and that's where God allows you to do what you want to do. In Jeremiah chapter 19, we, verse 5, we understand a little bit about the problem of evil, not entirely, but enough to forward the discussion. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. They literally sacrifice their children in fire to Baal. Do you think that people are offering their children to a false god today? Yeah, abortion is an idol sacrifice. And what is the idol they're worshiping? Self. Well, yeah, yeah I, I did have sex. You know, it was, it was my, my choice. Yeah, and, and it was fun, and I enjoyed it. But I don't want the responsibility now. So I'll offer up my baby to the idol of self. Kill it, rip it apart, vacuum it up, suck it up, cut it up. And even somebody may say, well, what about rape? What about those who have been hurt? Yep, that wasn't your choice. But remember, we kill or punish the murderer, not the innocent. And now that baby is innocent, right? And so they built high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. He says, something I, God speaking here, something I did not command, I didn't tell you to do this, or mention, now watch this, nor did it enter my mind. So God is not responsible for what free will creatures do. Now, some people try to be real slick here, and they go, well, well, let me understand this. So God knew that people would sin, right, but he didn't make them sin, right, but he allowed them to sin, right. So then why did he not just stop it at the beginning? Why did he allow all that to go? Well, here's the deal. He could have done that very simply by removing his permissive will. He could have simply said, this is what I want, and then the second, uh, the third part, rather, is the creative will, what God is going to do, his actual consequence for bad behavior or whatever he wants done upon this earth. He could have removed his permissive will and said, here's what I want, Adam and Eve, don't eat this tree. I'm going to put up a force field around it. You will not be able to eat it. Done. But are they free? He could say this, I won't let you rape. Every time you rape, I will prevent it. Has he given you choice? No. And so here is the deal. When God created the world, everybody get this. This may be hard for some of you to want to believe, but it's easy to understand when you think about it. And I'll play a video in just a moment with some, you know, those stick figures that we like around here. You'll see a video and it'll help you out. But here's the deal. God had A or B. Two logical options when we talk about the created order. A is Everybody obeys him at all times. There is no evil. There is no suffering. Only obedience to God. Downside of option A, there is no true love. Because ask your neighbor the question, would you rather be kidnapped or fall in love voluntarily? Just ask your neighbor. Just ask her. I want to know. Does anybody here want to be kidnapped or fall in love voluntarily? Right? So nothing over here, nothing over here will be evil, but here's the thing. There is no choice. There is no choice. Lucifer can't leave. Adam and Eve can't leave. You're here, and you don't know the difference. Or B, over here, you can have true love. You can have true choice. But here's the thing. Some choices will result in corruption. Some choices will affect people generations to come. 
The degrading of the human DNA will cause deficiency in the body because God's hand will no longer be over the DNA code that he created perfect in the garden. It now will lead to death. Genetic disorders, cancer will come. The earth will no longer be protected by the canopy that was once upon it. It will now take the radiation of the sun. It will now have the earthquakes. It will have fault lines. It will have all of the problems of the world. But here's the deal. You have choice to love. Now, this is God's decreative will. It was his choice, not ours. He said, I choose this one. I will accept that their world can go to hell in the handbasket. I, hand I will accept that people will reject me. I will accept that corruption will come for my glory of people choosing me, for him being chosen. And that was in his regard. Somebody say sovereign. That was his choice. Now, if you are a creator, you can make your own choice. But you are not. And now we go back to the thing. If we didn't create ourselves, then who created us, right? And something, nothing, something doesn't come from nothing. Now let me just give you a little bit more description here because I know in closing I do want to end today at 12. By God's help, I will end at 12. I mean at uh, 3. I got nine minutes. Sorry, that's already come and gone. Um, here we go. Nine minutes to summarize this bad boy up because I will not go longer. That's the will of God, right? That's God's will. Here's God's, here it is an example of sin. God says, it's my will that thou shalt not murder. Man says, it's my will that I murder, and God allows it. Then he decrees, it's my choice how I judge murderers because I make the laws and murderers are lawbreakers. How about in the problem of evil as we get ready to play the video? God says, I want everyone to obey me. Adam and Eve, you can live here in paradise forever. But then man says, I don't want to obey you. God allows it to happen. But then he decrees, I will make a world where even those who don't obey me bring me glory. Because if God removed his permissive will, as we said before, he would have to remove free will. Everybody say, permissive will brings free will. If you remove permissive will, you have no free will. Mankind would be forced to obey God, and thus everything he commanded would be decreed for man to obey. However, since God has made man free, he is not responsible for our sinful actions, but only responsible to judge our sin. And let's watch this video for more information, and then we will close out today with a wonderful verse. The presence of evil, pain, and suffering in our world is Just the most persistent more. argument raised against the belief in God. Bye. Usually it goes something like this. Put your hands up now! An all-knowing God would know evil exists. An all-loving God would want to prevent evil from existing. An all-powerful God would prevent evil from existing. But hand. evil does exist. Now, given that the fourth proposition would appear to be undeniable, it can be inferred that one of the other three must be false, and thus there cannot be an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God. Checkmate. Or at least some people think that. However, not too long ago, an American philosopher named Alvin Carl Plantinga put forth a new proposition that is intended to demonstrate that it is logically possible for such a God to create a world that does contain evil. This is how he summarized his defense. A world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do only what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. They do not do what is right freely. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore, he must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. C.S. Lewis would agree, saying, 
Imagine a wooden beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carried lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. If the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. Continuing his defense, Plantinga says, as it turned out, sadly enough, some of the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom. This is the source of moral evil. The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against his goodness, for he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. So, even though God is all-powerful, it is possible that it was not in his power to create a world containing moral good, but no moral evil. Therefore, there is no logical inconsistency involved when God, although wholly good, creates a world of free creatures who chose to do evil. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on, he gave you free will. Free will is a good thing. If you don't like that, you need to be reminded by someone who has lost their free will, right? And that's why we free slaves. That's why we believe sex trafficking is a sin. So we do believe in the autonomy of human beings made in the image of God. God has free will. God has choice. God had a choice whether to create us or not create us, and he chose to do that for his glory. Now, here are those definitions I want to give you quickly in closing. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 3, gives us the idea of God's uh, sovereignty. Psalm 115, verse 3, teaches us that the Lord our God is in heaven and does whatever pleases him. So at the end, we do have to settle the issue. It pleased God to have a world with fallen creatures so that some may be redeemed and choose him. He did not want a pristine, um, solid-state world without evil because then he would have no world that could choose him and rightly make that choice. So as a part of his plan, he allowed there to be evil so that he could conquer evil with good and people could choose him. So now once again, if you get sassy and you go, well, I'm just upset he made a world of evil. I'm upset that I'm even here. Well, here's how you get back at an evil world. Live for Jesus. Because now if you shake your fist at the creator, you'll go where all evil people go. You will suffer an evil into your lot, okay? So the greatest thing you can do in a world that is a mess is go, dear God, make it right. I need you in this world. Does everybody get that? The evil of this world should drive you to your knees and say, your kingdom, come already. Come on, your will be done. Start right now with the president. Start right now with the politicians. Start, you know, in the streets. You should be so desperate for it. But the really, if that's not your heart, then it's because you have a rebellious heart, which is not necessarily um, what you're posing the issue to be. You're posing the issue as if God is unjust, like you're putting God on the stand. And you're going to go, God, you listen here. You're this, this, and that. But you don't have a leg to stand on. If God is the definition of morality, and then you cut out this pole that holds it up, it falls down. You can't argue with God about morality, because without God, you would have more, no morality. You can't argue with God about creation, because without God, you would have no creation. Can I get an amen for that? And so we understand that, yes, he's God, and that he can do whatever he wants, but he's a righteous and holy God, and so he turns evil decisions into good. The crucifixion was the evil intent of man, but he turned it into good to save sinners, and so forth. And I don't have time to get into all those examples, but if you read the Bible, you'll see them there. Now, the foreknowledge does mean that God does already know the end from the beginning. 
But that doesn't mean that he changed our choices. Just God knows how your life ends doesn't mean he chose those choices for you. Think about it like this. If we were to watch a World Series game from the 1970s, we would watch it. We would know how it would end. That would be what God's foreknowledge is, but that doesn't mean we made the players hit or strike out. We would just be all-knowing to what the outcome is. Their choices still remain their own. Also think of it as a thermometer. The thermometer is controlled by an external thing, as we know, is heat and the lack of heat. You can read the thermometer but have nothing to do with the heat and the lack of heat. God looks at our choices and sees which direction they go, but he himself is not responsible for them. We are the responsible agent. He is simply the thermometer, knowing what's going to happen, and then according to our free choices, he predestines, decrees what he is going to do. So he knew that I would do drugs, and he knew out of those drugs, he would use that to try to uh, get me to come to repentance. If I wouldn't come to repentance, this would be more justification of his justice, him reaching out to me. Either way, God wins. He knows the end from the beginning, and he gets glory anyways. He gets glory out of Satan right now. He gets glory out of every sickness. Not that the sickness is glorifying or something great about the sickness, but because the sickness brings us closer to him. How many of you see the pain and sorrow of this world, of the seven-year-old child, and go, dear God, I'm praying for that kingdom to come. I'm asking for true healing to come. I look to the cross where the healing was atoned for. And so when we side on the side of God, he knows the end from the beginning, yes, but when we side on him, we reap the benefits. Because even though he knows the end from the beginning, it doesn't mean I have to go to hell. I get to choose what direction I go in. And so uh, as Rachel comes, here's just three stories, real symbolic of the whole Bible, that you can understand God's will. Adam and Eve, we've kind of already gone through that before. What does God's descriptive will tell them? Don't eat from the tree. What does the permissive will do? Allow them to eat it. What does God the creative will do? He then curses the earth and humanity. That's why we needed Jesus to come and make a new humanity. Does everybody get that? And so what caused her to want to eat the fruit? Did she, could she use the excuse, oh, I didn't know God's command? No, she knew God's command and said it right back to the serpent. The reason why she ate the fruit is right here, is it was pleasing to the eye. How many men here know to lust after a woman is sin? It's not the will of God to do that. But when it's pleasing to the eye, it comes natural to you and you give into it. That is sin. You need to resist that. We need to resist what comes natural to our will and say, not my will, but your will be done. And everything you see now as a problem in the world is there in Genesis chapter 3. And I don't have time to read it all. But the enmity now that we have with animals, that we're not at peace with animals, that the earth is not at peace with itself, that we are not at peace with each other, that men and women strive against each other, men using women as sexual objects and women coming to men using them for a long time, as we know in culture, for security and for whatever other uh, ulterior motive they would need, you know. And so we've seen the worst of humanity come out because we lost the blessing of God. Now, somebody might say, well, that was before the fall. Well, what about after the fall? Well, God told people how to give him offerings. Cain brought his leftovers, gave whatever he didn't want to eat, his spoiled fruit, as it were. Abel brought the best of his, uh, his flocks, brought the best animals. Now, God says to Cain, verbal, audible voice, God says to him, why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Okay, Cain hears the voice of God tell him, do the right thing and I'll bless you. What does Cain do? Cain says, hey bro, let's go out to the field. And he kills his brother. God's fault or Cain's fault? Cain's fault. 
He chose his will over God's will. What does God say to Cain? Now, now you're cursed. How about the whole nation of Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you obey the Lord your God, carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord will set you high above the nations. You'll be blessed. And then he says here at the end, if you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. So what happens in between? Basically 500 years of rebellion. Ezekiel is now with the Israelites in Babylon, and this is what God says to them after they've been defeated and taken into captivity. Exactly what he said would happen if they didn't obey him. This is what he says. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you, Ezekiel, because they're not willing to listen to me, for the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. Once again, whose will? Your will or God's will? C.S. Lewis said, on judgment day, God is going to look to some and say, enter into my kingdom. For you said, my will, not your will, be done. Others, he is going to say, your will, not my will, be done. Do you get it? It was their will to reject him. He said, it wasn't my will, but that's what you want. You get it. To others, they're going to say, it was my will to sin sometimes, God, but I made my will your will. To some, he will say, you know what? It wasn't about your will. It was about my will. Come on in. And to the reprobate, to the hardened, to the obstinate, he'll say, it wasn't my will to do this. Since it was your will, go. So in your life, you have to look at it as a simple understanding. Who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? So now how do you discover the will of God? It goes back to everything you've always learned about basic Christianity. If you're new to Christianity, this is how it works. You pray, you read your Bible, you go to church and learn from others. Praying gets you to learn the heart of God so that as you're studying those scriptures, you can hear his voice for yourself. Do you always do it right? No, but he built into the system a thing called repentance where you can make it right. So the times I haven't done the will of God, I ask for forgiveness so that I can go back to doing the will of God. When I study his word, what am I doing? I am learning through application the truth that he gives. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about it so clearly. Ephesians 5, 7. Look at it here. It says, don't be partners with them. Or excuse me, I always mess this one up, don't I? 5.17. Messed it up in the first service. Look at what it says. Therefore, do not be foolish. Look at your neighbor and say, I pity the fool. God pities the fool too. Don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. But understand what the Lord's will is. Ask, seek, knock. And until you don't know, if you don't know it, don't move yet. Well, I don't know if it's God's will for me to take this job yet. Pray through until you have the peace. Well, I don't know if it's right to date this girl. Pray through until you have the peace. Well, I don't know if I should, you know, uh, do this such and such a thing. Pray through until you have the peace. This is a real relationship. The Word of God is there to teach you what His will is, and it is your job to pray through it. And then lastly, to go to the church where there should be people experienced in the will of God who can help you discern it. So you will not be foolish anymore. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says it so plainly for all of us to know. It says, follow the example of your leaders. Obey them. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who much give an account. So you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure yet on the will of God in this matter. And I'm, you know, like let's say you're in the middle of a tough situation in your marriage and it's about ready to come to a divorce as we've had to deal with. You seek out godly counsel. 
you, you go through the leadership of people who have been learning the will of God a lot longer than you are at least more thorough or just a confirmation of it, right? Because sometimes you may know more than them, but I'm just trying to give you the benefit, giving you a benefit of doubt you're learning, but most of you don't know as much as the pastors. Let's say even you do, you're still coming to them for a confirmation of God's will. And he said, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. We come together and we study God's word. We pray through it and we learn from each other, amen? How many know you can help me discern the will of God? You can help me do that. And here's that scripture in closing. This is so beautiful. Paul's other letter to the people in Rome. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. How many can see a pattern in the world right now? You see a pattern. Don't conform to that pattern, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now watch this. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many want God's good will? How many want God's pleasing will? How many want God's perfect will? Would you just bow your heads with me then in an attitude of prayer? If it helps you to close your eyes, please feel free to do so. Even kneel if you, if you want to. We'll do altar time in just a moment, but just right where you're at, let us focus upon the will of God, the will of God for our lives. Lord, you said that we should ask, seek, and knock to know your will that we should be renewed in our mind to experience your will. Paul said that he could know your will, your will good enough to know what he was supposed to do in life, where he was supposed to be. I pray that now we will apply these things to our life. Right now, if you're not saved, it's the will of God that you get saved. He said, I uh, wish and will that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his, that is his descriptive will in Peter. He wants no one to perish. If you want to do that right now, just say, Lord, come into my heart. Be my Savior. Next, if you're here and you've been struggling in a sin, it's God's will that you would not be in a repetitive sin. That sin would not be an addiction to you, something that you can't break free from. Jesus says who the Son sets free is free indeed. So if you want to be free from a sin or a bunch of sins, repent and say, Lord, set me free. Break the tie of sin from my flesh so that I may serve you in freedom. Now let's get into some specific areas. Those of you who want the will of God in your marriage, start right now and say, God, let your will be done. Your kingdom come in my marriage, with my wife, with my husband. Move it on down to your children, with my children, oh God. Children, pray for it as you would pray uh, yourself and your parents, that children, you would obey your parents. If they don't serve God, that your parents would do the will of God, and until then, you would still love them and obey them. Let's pray for our families, for the will of God. Let's now pray for what we do for a living. God, put passion inside of our heart so that whatever we do, nine to five, we do it as unto you. Let your will be done in my life through the job that I work, through the career path that I have. So many of you, just you do wonderful things every day. And I'm so honored to have you here in this church. I hope you're praying for God's will to be done on that job. You have so much opportunity to do great things for God. And that doesn't necessarily mean a Bible study all the time. It just means being great at what you do, having the right heart and being a witness and then looking for opportunities as they come. How many want to pray right now for the will of God to be done in this city? The Bible says we should pray for our leaders. Let's pray for the will of God to be done in our mayor's life. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, for all the aldermen, for the judges. 
How about we pray for the police department, the police chiefs, the Department of Education, our social services, our military. Let's pray for the business owners, those that invest in this city. Let's pray for the will of God upon this earth. Let's not be ignorant of it. Let's do it. Let's do the will of God in this city. Let's pray for the will of God among young people, the will of God among gangs, that they would find his purpose for their life. The will of God. Now let's pray for the president. Let's pray for the cabinet. Let's pray for the Supreme Court. The will of God to be done in President Trump's life. The will of God to be done in the cabinet. The will of God to be done in the Supreme Court. The will of God to be done in the Senate, in the Congress, in our governors, in our leadership. The will of God. The will of God. Let all men seek your face, O Lord, for this nation's benefit, for the benefit of the individuals and for the society, God. We know with or without America, your kingdom's coming. With or without us, your kingdom's coming. But Lord, we want to be on your side. We want to be on your side. Yes, you know how it all ends, but I still have a choice in the matter right now how I'm going to end. I get a choice of whether I get to go to heaven or hell. I, don't, I didn't get a choice of where I would be born, what generation I would live in. I didn't get a choice of the color of hair and the genetics that I would have. But by your grace, I have a choice to choose you. And I choose you, Lord. Come on. And now let's pray for God's will and the kingdom of God throughout the churches among the nations right now. God's kingdom come. God will be done throughout the world right now for the churches to rise up just as you're learning the kingdom principles today that all the people throughout the nations will learn God's kingdom principles. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're just going to sing that out here just for a few moments. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we get ready to do that, I want you just now to make it personal. As your pastor, I tried to guide you through the